Church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We've been studying this book for some time now, and we draw to the close in chapter 16. We're approaching Paul's conclusion. Before we read chapter 16, as you're turning there, I'm curious to know, I wonder if I could convince you this morning to not join a church. Church members, before you fire me, (laughs) hear me out. Imagine for a moment that you're not a member of this church. You're not a member of any church. I'm going to try to convince you to not join a church. I don't think it would be hard. You'll save money if you don't join. You'll save time. You'll save yourself from heartache. You'll save yourself from headache. You'll save yourself from a number of different aches. You'll save yourself from being annoyed at people. You'll save yourself from drama. Your life is going to be more comfortable. You're less likely to be offended. You won't have to spend so much time learning and singing and standing and sitting and serving and sacrificing. You'll get your way way more often. You'll have time for other things. You'll have more money for other stuff. I feel like I could keep going and I feel like I can be pretty convincing. This morning we're finishing Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, finally reaching the 10th topic as I see it here in chapter 16. It's the topic of stewardship. And just like every other topic in this letter, the final topic is intended to accomplish a greater end. Gospel unity in the church. Unity that's not based on preference or personal desire, but based on the mutual pursuit of holiness. The good of one another. Physical displays of the gospel, the building up of the church, belief in the gospel, living out the gospel together. So in light of these themes, here's our main idea this morning. Coordinated stewardship displays gospel unity in the church. Coordinated stewardship displays gospel unity in the church. Why is it that we put ourselves through all the hard work that I just listed off at the beginning of our service? Why would we do that? In short, we cannot help it. We can't help it. This is who we are now. This is where we belong. Not the building, but with God's people. And as hard as it is, for those who know Christ, we would not and we could not have it any other way. Because we love Jesus, we love his body. And that's the church. Hopefully you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm going to invite you to stand together this morning for the reading of God's holy word just as a reminder in our physical postures of the authority 
that God's word holds in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired the words that we just read, would you please speak now into our hearts to give us the truth of your word, radiating deep within our souls, continuing this work of casting out the darkness Bring us, Lord, into the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As Paul concludes his letter, we might be tempted to conclude all the important stuff is done. Chapters 1 through 15, that's the important stuff. Now we just kind of get to the leftovers. We're just tying up loose ends. There's really nothing of value left. This is just a long, drawn-out goodbye, see you soon. I want to challenge that assumption this morning. Instead, what we are seeing in God's Word are some of the practical components of community and unity within the church. As we read the final chapter, there's a thread woven throughout these seemingly unrelated comments, and that is unity. 
What Paul describes at the end of his letter is the intentional weaving together of the church by the church. It's unity, not as a goal, but as a byproduct of the gospel. Unity as a not as a goal, but as a byproduct. Christian unity, church unity, is a byproduct of our Christian identity. It happens because of who we are. Those who have been saved through the gospel become shaped by the gospel. And those who are being shaped by the gospel slowly become one with one another. Now, it would be a mistake to conclude that unity just happens in the church. If you're tempted to conclude that, I challenge you to walk into any church in our country or around the world. Look through the letter of 1 Corinthians that we've been studying together, and we'll see just the opposite. When left to our own ways, we tend toward disunity. Our flesh pulls us from one another. Our desires rend us apart. It tears us away from the gospel towards self. So part of our sanctification is training ourselves to live out the truth of the gospel in intentional ways, and that includes unity. That's what we see here at the end of Paul's letter. I'm going to refer to this weaving together as coordinated stewardship. Coordinated stewardship. Stewardship is simply using what you've been given. Now, you can do this well or you can do it poorly. You can be a good steward. You can be a bad steward. What guides the quality of your stewardship is twofold. Who has given whatever to you that you are stewarding? And for what purpose has it been given? Ultimately, all things are from God, so we are all accountable to God for what we do with everything He's given us. We are all stewards. Coordinated stewardship, then, is intentional stewardship as a group. Intentional stewardship as a group. Consider the football game this past week. Me and my family thought, okay, we're going to be really smart about this. We're going to show up really early and hopefully find a parking spot easily and, and not have a hard time finding a seat at all. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> Big game. At the game, we noticed, I noticed in particular this one play. I'm not a football player, so laugh at me all you want. The quarterback receives the ball. He hands off this way. The guy receives the ball. He hands off this way, and he's running back the other way. Had a wide open run up the field. That's impressive. I don't know what you call that, but it was cool. You know what that took? Coordinated efforts ahead of time. Coming together and intentionally deciding with our skills and abilities what's the best way to coordinate ourselves to accomplish a purpose. Coordinated stewardship. This morning, we're going to look at two ways that our mutual union with Christ stirs us towards coordinated stewardship with one another. The gospel stirs us towards stewardship of our resources and of our relationships. Our resources and our relationships. So number one, the gospel stirs us toward coordinated stewardship of our resources. Look with me at verses one through four. He writes, now concerning the collection for the saints, 
as I directed the other churches, the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So there's two resources that we see in our passage today. We just read the first. The first resource that we steward is our money. We steward our money. What Paul is instructing the church here is not unique to this church. Apparently, there's a pattern in all the churches that on the first day of the week, there would be a collection for the church. And what Paul is instructing them to do is the same thing he instructed the church in Galatia to do. When you gather, when you collect your money together, take a portion to set aside each week. And when I come, eventually, whenever I come, you will have accumulated a certain amount of money to give for an intentional effort in helping the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. We have a word for this, sort of. It's called budgeting. We are setting aside, we are planning ahead for how we are going to use our resources. We have a regular time of giving on Sundays, the first day of the week. It's called the tithes and the offerings. There's a reason that we do the things we do in the church. Now notice the phrase, as he may prosper. What this means is that each Christian was to be in a state of conscious reflection upon his or her ability to give. Constantly asking, based on what the Lord has provided for me, what am I to give? The question wasn't, how much do I have to give, but how much can I give? So Paul was collecting this money from all the churches, and all the churches were being unified in their stewardship. They intentionally set the money aside for a purpose. How we use our money reveals what we have chosen to unite ourselves with. We give our money to all kinds of people or places, especially as the election year is getting ready to ramp up. We give our money to different political candidates, social programs, charity organizations, family members, fast food organizations, country clubs, fishing gear, schools, snacks. Now these aren't necessarily bad, but Jesus teaches us that there's a direct relationship between our treasure and our hearts. In Luke 12, 34, he says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How we spend our money reveals the condition of our hearts, but it also directs our hearts. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why Jesus, right before this verse, tells his disciples, give to the poor, sell your possessions. Think about whenever you accumulate things in your house that are hard to get rid of. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the reasons it's hard to get rid of things sometimes is because I remember how much money I spent on that when I bought it. It doesn't matter if I don't need it now, I spent a lot of money on that. (laughs) I don't want to get rid of that. I have attached my heart to something in how I have distributed 
my income, my wealth. So Jesus instructs his disciples, give to the poor, sell your possessions. And there's two reasons. Number one, you have a new treasure now. That is not your treasure anymore. And number two, what you do with your treasure will affect your heart. But money is not our only resource. It's not our only treasure. Continue here in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Do you notice this word here in verse 6? To spend the winter. Or in verse 7, to spend some time with you. The second resource that we see Paul describing here is time. Time. Time is a resource. We have a phrase, time is money. We mean that in multiple ways. Time is a universal resource. It's given to everyone. Every morning, we wake up, and we all have the same amount of time that day, unless the Lord takes it from us. But we all have the same amount of time to spend. We know how Paul spent much of his time. He was a traveling missionary, traveling to the different churches, spreading the gospel, shepherding these churches along the way, helping them to establish themselves. We aren't all called to shepherd churches around the globe as missionaries. That's not the point here. The point is how Paul wanted to spend his time. He says in verse 7, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. He doesn't want it to be a drive-by visit. He wants to sit and spend time with them, so he's going to delay his time so that he can maximize it with them. The church of Corinth wasn't a job or an obligation to Paul. They were his family, and Paul wanted to spend time with his family. In fact, it's their time together that marks them as a church. How do you know that these individuals were a church together? They spend time together, regular time together. Just like money, how we spend our time reveals who or what our hearts belong to. Think about how you spend your time, how you spend your money. What does it reveal about where you place your hope and trust? What does it reveal about who or what you truly care for? To any non-Christians visiting this morning, time and money are very valuable resources, but they make terrible gods. Time is something that we are all going to run out of eventually. And when our time runs out, the amount of money that we have stored up will mean relatively little to us. It will certainly mean nothing according to where we will be going. When we stand before God at the final day of judgment, all the money you spent all your time earning will not remove one single ounce off the scales of justice. You cannot pay for that. 
with money or time. Yet we run ourselves ragged pursuing it. There is only one way to have the scales wiped clean, and that is trusting Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. That's it. This realization changes how we use our time and our money. Jesus has done for us what time and money cannot do. He has purchased our forgiveness and our freedom, not with time or money, but with His blood. He has purchased us. He has given His life for us. Jesus has bought for us what we could never purchase for ourselves. And in so doing, Jesus Himself becomes our new treasure. We have exchanged the love of money and the love for time for a love for Christ. This is what it means in part to be a Christian. Christians understand this. Most non-Christians don't quite get it. You can't value Christ. You can't treasure Christ as you should. So many times in Scripture, the love of money is contrasted with love for Christ. The Scriptures say things like this, Keep your life free from love of money. In the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's a pastoral qualification. He is to not be a lover of money. Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our use of time and money reveals what it is that we truly value, what it is that we truly worship. Brothers and sisters, look at your own life with sober judgment. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? There are two significant ways that we fail to coordinate our stewardship of these resources. Disproportionate spending, whether in time or money, and detestable spending. That is to say that we either spend too much on certain things and not enough on the right things, it's disproportionate, or we spend our resources on things that does not please the Lord. It dishonors the Lord. Things that we might be ashamed if people knew we spent our money or our time on. And I think time might be more deceptive here, because money, people see where we go. There's records of these things. But our time, people may not see what we do behind closed doors. It's easier to spend this resource without any unwanted attention sometimes. The reason that this is important is because the coordinated stewardship of our time and money as a church displays our unity in Christ as a church. Two questions kind of flow from this idea. Number one, what does your money say about your relationship with the church? 
I'm talking specifically about this one. As Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, I am addressing us as a church here. What does your money say about your relationship with this church? What does your time say about your relationship with this church? Your answers to these questions are going to reveal you were either one with this church or you were not. If you're a member of a church that you don't devote significant time or money to, you may be with that church, but you were not really one with that church. Significant here, not being an amount, but like verse 2, as you may prosper. It's to say, I have the time, but I choose not to go. Or I have the money, but I choose not to give. I have money, I have time, but I don't want to spend it at, or in, or on, or with the church. Now, if you're a Christian and you aren't one with this church, that's okay. So long as you're united with another church. I know we have visitors this morning that are saying, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a member of this church, I'm a member of another church. Praise God. Unite yourself to that church in your time and in your resources. If you aren't doing this, you simply must find a church that you can unite with and coordinate the stewardship of your time and money with. This is one of the ways that God has designed the church to display his glory to the world. Now, if you're not a Christian, hear me carefully. No amount of time or money that you give to this church or any church for God, in God's name, whatever, will ever cover the debt you owe to God due to your sin. You cannot give enough time or money to the church to secure your redemption. That is not how this works. It is only by trusting Jesus through faith and repentance that your debt can be paid. Christians don't steward their resources in order to win special favor with God. We can't. We steward our resources because we no longer treasure our resources like we used to. It is not as valuable to us as it used to be. Christ is our new treasure. Our stewardship of our resources with our church is just a natural outworking of our new desires. We steward our resources because Jesus is our true treasure. There's a second coordinated stewardship that we see this morning in our passage. The gospel stirs us toward coordinated stewardship of our relationships. Our relationships. Rather than looking at the different types of relationships that we see here in this passage, we're going to look at the different ways that these relationships are stewarded. It may sound strange to hear the word steward coupled with the word relationship. That doesn't mean that people are a means to an end. What it means is that God has designed us for relationship with one another. Our relationships with one another reflect, in a sense, the relationship of God with himself. 
He is a triune God, one God in three persons who has eternally coexisted in relationship with himself. And then he makes us and then tells us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we have the family unit, a relationship that reflects the gospel, our relationship with God. We are all built and designed for relationships. And God intends those relationships for specific purposes. God designs the family for the proper development of human beings. We are raising, we are raising human beings in our children. We are raising people. We are making people. God designed the church for Christian growth and expansion. To be a good steward of these relationships is to use the relationships for what they're designed to do. For my children to be a good steward of the relationship of having a mother and a father would be for them to come to us and say, Mother, Father, you're so wise. Help me, please. Teach me your wisdom. Write down, keep writing. That's excellent. Love that. That's to be a good steward of that relationship. We know what God intends it for, and we use it. So to coordinate our stewardship of relationships is to do that together as a church on purpose. And I see in our passage this morning three ways we can do that. Here's the first, through service. Through service. That's what we see here in verses 8 through 12. Though Paul wants to spend time with the Corinthians, he's choosing to stay here in Ephesus. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? A wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. How does Paul know that a wide door of work has been opened? Because people are opposing him. Satan loves to meddle in things when something is starting to click into place. Does he not? And Paul notices and says, I can't come yet. Something's happening here. There are adversaries. I need to stay, but I will come to you later to spend this time with you. Paul has an opportunity for ministry that he simply cannot pass up. We see reference, if you continue down in verse 10, to Timothy here as well. It says that he's doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. We see reference to Apollos also in verse 12 concerning our brother Apollos. I urged him strongly to visit you, but it was not at all his will to come. The implication behind Timothy and Apollos is they are prioritizing ministry. Timothy is able to make it. Why? To minister to them, to serve them. Apollos is not able to make it. Why? He's serving somewhere else. Notice that the point of all of these decisions is that people might be served. Paul wants to serve the Corinthians, but first he's serving the Ephesians. Timothy wants to serve the Corinthians, and then the Corinthians are to serve him while he's serving them. Apollos can't yet serve the Corinthians because he's busy serving someone else. The Christian life is a life of service. Life in the church is a life of coordinated service together. Second, we see that relationships are stewarded through sincere love. Through sincere love. Look at verse 13 with me. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, 
Let all that you do be done in love. The first four instructions here evoke images of soldiers. Be alert. Be on the lookout. Be courageous. Act like men. Stand firm. Plant your feet. But then there's this final instruction. Let all that you do be done in love. In a way, this applies to almost the entire letter, much like chapter 13 applies to everything Paul is saying. The instruction here is not for the individual Christian. Especially here in the West, we tend to read the Scriptures through a lens of individualism. That is to say, okay, I'm reading the Bible for me. What do I do? How am I supposed to do this? But a lot of the commands, especially in Paul's letters, are given in plural form. They're for the church collectively, and that's what we see here in our passage. It's hard to see it for us because you, singular, you, plural, looks the same in English. But in the Greek here, it is all plural. Second person, you as a group, be watchful. You as a group, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. And then in verse 14, this word, let, ties those things together like a thread pulls and then cloth comes together. This word let is just like in chapter 14 when we saw all these let this happen, let this happen, let this happen. He's not saying allow these things to take place. It's a third person imperative. He's saying, hey, you big group of people, let each of you individually do this. Here's what he's telling them. If I were to read it from the Greek to the English, word for word. Whenever he says, let everything that you do be done in love, it would be saying, all you, in love, be. Be in love with each other. All of you, be in love. This is the strength of the church. Jesus threads us together in love so that we are able to bear the weight of the responsibility that he gives us to carry out in his power. When we are not threaded together in love, the foundation cannot support what the Lord wants to do through us. Sincere love for one another strengthens the church. Now verses 19 through 24, we see a practical outworking of that love. The churches of Asia send you greetings. All the churches are communicating. Hey, greet this person. Hey, tell them we said hi. Hey, great. Hey, greet one another. There's this phrase, a hearty greeting. They send you hearty greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 22, we see that Christian love is an outworking of love for God. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The default disposition of the Christian is love because he or she has been changed by the love of God. You cannot help but love because God has changed you. Say, Garrett, I can't love like that. Then God has not changed you. That's the weight of Paul's words here. 
If we do not love God whom we have not seen, of course we can't love others whom we do see. First John 4, 7-8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love then, sincere love for one another, especially in the church, is one of the marks of true conversion. What we see here is more than just do things in a loving way, though that's certainly entailed. We've talked about that. What we're seeing here is be strengthened as a church by displaying your true love for one another. That is how a church of God will demonstrate its strength. The world cannot understand this. The world cannot understand what would make some people so different from one another, so loving towards one another. We have people in this room right now that don't speak the same language. We don't look the same. We're not the same ages. Some of us are old. Some of us are young. Some of us are in between. Some of us speak English. Some of us speak Spanish. What, what would cause someone to, spit, to come together in this group? This group does not make sense to the world. The world cannot understand the loving bond between members of the same church who sincerely love one another deeply. The mutual love of a church is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism that the church has. Even back into the first early centuries after the birth of the church, there's these letters written, like the letter to Diognetus, where he's writing, trying to contend for the faith. And he says, let me answer these observations that you make. You notice and you ask, how is it that you Christians have such love for one another? 400 years after the death of Christ, the world is already saying, the church does not make sense. I must know more about this. Jesus himself in John 13, 35, says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have a big budget, nope, the most programs, highest attendance, the biggest smiles. The holiest looking lives? No. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is hard. It takes intentional, coordinated stewardship to display sincere love for one another. Here's the final way that we see relationships stewarded in this passage this morning through subjection. Look at verses 15 and 16. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. So these first converts in Achaia devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The implication here is that these believers are spiritual examples. They're leaders. 
Paul instructs the Corinthians, be subject to such as these. Not to say only to these, but to people like this. Fall underneath them. One of the ways that we coordinate the stewardship of our relationships is by placing ourselves underneath the leadership of certain Christians. The word subject as a verb, it can also be translated subordinate, to place or arrange underneath. Though our culture has a negative view of submission or subjection or authority, God-given authority is designed for our good. The Bible speaks of healthy submission to government, healthy submission within the family, in the church, and ultimately to the Lord. Each sphere of submission is intended for our good. Now, that doesn't mean that each sphere will always be exercised correctly. And it doesn't mean that there will never be times to disobey within a smaller sphere so that I might obey the Lord in this larger sphere. Rather, as verse 18 articulates, it is a recognition of godly order and structure. Give recognition to such people. We recognize that God gives order and structure for our good. And this is especially true within the church. The word recognize comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. We often use recognize in our language as a synonym for honor. We show someone recognition, stand up so we can clap and applaud and recognize you. The Greek actually has a similar connotation sometimes. It depends on the context. But in the context of subjection, the word can mean any of the following. To learn, to know exactly, to understand, to observe, to discover. So the idea here is that our leaders are resources for us to study, to approach and try to understand to know exactly. They are resources for our growth. It's a relationship that we must steward. And how do we do so? Recognize. Seek to understand. Approach all for the purpose of obeying Christ as they lead on his behalf. Maybe this morning you're hearing how Christians intentionally steward these relationships, and you're thinking to yourself, why would anyone live like this? Why would anyone give their time and their money, two of the most valuable resources we have, to join together and learn how to love one another, people who are different from you as a church, and then to subject yourself to spiritual leaders who aren't perfect? Who would do something like that? Why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because that group of people has been transformed by the grace of God. We are different now than we used to be. In Christ, not only do we steward our resources because Jesus is our greatest treasure, but we steward our relationships because we have been adopted. 
We have been rescued from a former life and set into a new life that comes with new relationships, new responsibilities. We are part of a new family now. We have a new purpose. Of course, it doesn't make sense for those outside the family. They're not part of the family. They don't get it. But for those who have been adopted by Jesus, old relationships have been severed and new relationships have been formed. The reason that we coordinate our resources and our relationships is so that we might more clearly communicate to the watching world what has happened to us on the inside. The world needs to see the gospel not just hear it from our lips. It won't work for the world to hear from us, listen to how Jesus can rescue you from the world and into his body where we all love one another, but then for the world to hear you spewing venom about his body. That won't cut it. That's not how God works. How does God work? He calls a people out. He saves them, and then he tells them, be different. He called Israel out. He led them through the wilderness. He gave them instructions, which basically said, be different. And as Israel sought to look more and more like the rest of the world, they stumbled and fell short. And it's the same with the church. We are called out of our former lives to be different. And our intentional stewardship together communicates to the world, we actually are different now. Let me tell you why. This is not of our own doing. It is the grace of God that has saved us when we trust Jesus. Everything we do as Christians is simply in response to what God has done for us through Jesus. So church, may we display the gospel in our lives and our church through coordinated stewardship of our resources and our relationships so that the world can see our unity and the power of the gospel to save. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, right now we are uniting ourselves in prayer. Though we are led by one voice, all of our hearts being woven together by the gospel are crying out to you with a singular purpose. That you might hear us and that you might answer our church in power. Lord, we pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ that you would unite us one with another as we are already united through you. That you would continue to work out within us this coordinated stewardship of our resources and our relationships. That we might come together, being woven together into a beautiful tapestry for the world to see. Not exalting our church, not displaying the beauty of our church, but displaying the beauty of the cross and the power that it has to save a dead people and unite them together. Lord, would you stir and direct our money, our time with one another, 
increase the value that we have towards one another, that we might give our time for one another, with one another. Lord, stir us in our relationships with one another that we might serve and submit and sincerely love one another. Lord, for the non-believers in this room or those who may be mistaken, who think that they know you, Lord, but they are those who are far from you. I pray that you would use your word this morning to convince them of their need for you. That they might turn to you in humble submission by trusting Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name for his honor and glory and for our good. Amen.